Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today we're joined by Tyler LeMasters, Spokane City Council candidate in Washington State. Tyler, welcome to Global Law and Business. Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be here. We'd love to find out, first of all, a little more about you. Could you give us a brief introduction? Of course, we're going to dig in a lot into the details because you've had quite an interesting career already. It looks like you're doing some interesting things in Spokane. So please fill us in on on who you are and what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think the gist is that I'm a Spokane City Council candidate. It's it's interesting being summed up by that, but I'm, I'm a lot of other things as well. Yeah, I grew up in the military, military kid. Uh, all over the all over the world, really, um, the South, the West, the East, um, overseas, and Japan and Mexico and uh, Italy and all kinds of places. I ended up being in Spokane and just fell in love. Fell in love with it here. Fell in love with the people and the community. Uh, it's a really beautiful city. It's industrial. You know, we're 20 minutes from being out of the city to the mountains and the woods and the lakes. But also we have a really thriving uh, city center, which is great. You know, you can go good music scene, good food, good coffee, all those things is accessible. And so, you know, I just fell in love with it out here because as a military kid, you, you're not born into a home. You, you really, uh, you choose your home. And so 15 years ago, I chose this home and uh, yeah, it's given me a stake in the community. You know, it makes me feel a sense of ownership over over being part of this place. So what kind of background and interest do you have? You know, uh, what did you study in school? When you have spare time and you're, you're working on projects, what do you, what do you tend to focus on? Well, you know, I think we connected because of a mutual friend, Fred, and, you know, we connected because of our China history together. I do take a pretty strong interest in learning Mandarin on my own time. Uh, I'm a student of history. I like to read a lot of history, uh, specifically specifically U.S. history now, but it, it's been ancient Near Eastern history and Chinese history, um, economics, those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I just, I love learning, you know, I love learning. It's It's been a, a lifelong thing, um, not lifelong, but it's been since a certain point in my life, I decided that, you know, I needed to continue to build myself, so... Other than that, just the things that everyone likes, <laughs> friends, family, playing dominoes, tennis, those kind of things. Great. So now you're running for Spokane City Council. I'd like to hear a little more about what motivated you to run and, uh, 
what are the most pressing things that the city is looking at right now? The thing of it is, is everything because of COVID is, is amplified. Every decision that a city official has made is, has been amplified. It's kind of this interesting phenomenon, but those decisions were made. And, and I think the healthy economy before COVID was covering up a lot of mistakes, specifically in our city. Um, or at least slowing some of those mistakes. Uh, but our housing market out here, um, we're up $100,000 uh, on average home price here in Spokane. Um, that's a lot for us because the average home price was $205,000. Um, so that's a huge jump. You know, I think if you're in Seattle or LA or Portland where the home prices have already been fairly high to us, that may not sound like a lot, but I mean, that's, Intense. And then also we have a a large homeless problem, which I think a lot of people are experiencing around the country. And as well, we, we, um, we're just punishing our small businesses, just punishing them uh, with every decision we make for regulations and taxes and, uh, how they hire their employees and all those kinds of things. And so, you know, all that brought those three things brought me to this place where I was just tired of watching it. I couldn't keep watching it and waiting for. For someone to do something about it and you know people were nudging me towards it and so i answered the call and here i am in this uh city council race that i'm very passionate about it's very lucrative i'm making so much money off of it that's been really great <laughs> <laughs> and yeah you know it's just a, a life of service and it's, it's not really um it's a thankless job right no one really likes you after you do city council, but it's just a service that the city needs. So that's kind of what got me into it. And so do you feel like your uh, your family's military background uh, helped instill that sense of service to you? I mean, I feel like other friends of mine who are in, in similar situations tend to think, uh, you know, very much in terms of, of their duty and and what is best for uh, a group of people they're serving uh, and and much less so about uh, about their own interests. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly it. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot recently on how not just I react, react to myself um, and my own expectations for life, but also other elected officials. Um, you know, when you grow up in an environment where everyone around you is is serving um, and it really it really is service, you know, it's not just putting yourself in harm's way, but it's also the sacrifices that your family makes, you know, making new friends every two, three years, uh, having new church, having new schools, having new, everything is new every two, three years. And so, um, you know, growing up around that, it, it creates a standard. Not only my dad who just served 33 years in the air force and just retired last week as a Colonel, um, but also my uncle who served in Korea, he was shot 12 times, um, put on a dead pile and, and was actually saved. Um, my grandfather who was in the air force, my aunt who's in the air force, my cousin who's in the army, my other cousin who's a tank commander. So, you know, it's just, I grew up around it. Um, and so when I look at some of these people who, who are in office here, I expect a very high level of service as a very, as the minimum. Not even policies or economics, those things aside, I expect you to start with a level of service. And, you know, politics tends to draw people who have a level of ego. 
you know, there's a lot of ego in politics and I just have an adverse reaction to that. And I think it makes it impossible to serve the city. I think it makes it impossible to uh, make good decisions um, to do what's best for what we're talking about, housing, homelessness, small business. Uh, it just makes it impossible to do that if you don't have a level of, of conviction to be of service to the community. That makes quite a bit of sense. And it resonates with me as well. I, I think a lot of us after living through 2020, uh, everything that went on in the U.S. especially, and I'm sure other countries that were watching the U.S. tear itself apart, um, I felt like it is very hard for people who are in politics to, uh, you know, to divorce their ego from from the issues, especially where the higher you get, the more power you have. Um, it and it's it's one reason why I've been turned off of politics. But talking to to people like you gives me more, uh, you know, more hope even just for for the next election cycle. That as we have new generation of leaders step in who um, who see the the vitriol on both sides and really want to step in and say let's get issues done okay let's let's put egos at the door even even the thoughts of reelection at the door and figure out what's going to be best for the next for the next two five ten twenty years yeah that's a big thing too Jonathan it's you know you get into office and I'm no saint so I I feel myself battling some of these things. Um, but I'm aware of it. You know, I'm aware of, oh, wow, look, there's a little ego there, you know, or wow, that felt good, you know, doing that interview and getting that attention. You know, those things are real. It's just human nature. But, you know, you have to be aware of it and, and try to move forward. I think that what you said about, you know, the reelection thing is like, wow, I just worked so hard to get elected. We're going to knock on 15,000 doors this year. So I'm going to be knocking on 15,000. I'll probably knock on about 12 myself, and then I'll have volunteers knock on the rest. That is a lot of walking, and that's a lot of talking to strangers, right? And I don't get paid for that. And so there will be something in the back of my mind, if we win this election, when we win this election, that will say, you really do need to get reelected, though. So maybe don't say that, or maybe, you know, take a beat on this issue because it's not going to play well. Um, but that's not what we're doing, right? That's not what we're doing. We are here to serve and people will decide whether or not they want you to continue to serve based off of what you do. And so that's going to be our standard. Um, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So Tyler running in the midst of a pandemic must uh, in at least in some way impact the way that that you carry on i'd like to know how is covid-19 impacting the way that you reach out to potential voters you just mentioned the knocking on doors right i mean i'm sure that even at a very practical level right there there must be precautions that that you have to take i'm assuming that there will be people that will be skeptical or wary of of opening doors uh, to to strangers but i'm sure that there's going to be other other implications as well can you tell us about that yeah that's definitely a factor running with covid restrictions and regulations uh is going to change the way that we campaign definitely um mostly in bigger events right Normally, you could plan a big party and have a bunch of people show up and reach a large amount of people all at once. But I'm not going to actually say that too much has changed. It's 2021, so we have technology. 
that's big. I can reach people in their homes through marketing and, and targeting and those kinds of things. And I'm young, so I know how to do those things. I've, I've done it before with my uh, podcast that Fred helped me with a couple of times. Yeah, about China. You know, we did targeted marketing and that kind of thing. Uh, and then as far as door knocking, which is a big part of our campaign, it's pretty easy to follow the guidelines and be safe. I've knocked on a thousand doors so far. And, you know, you just knock on the door. Usually it takes people 10, 15 seconds to get to the door. So you just take a couple steps back. You're masked up, you know, and, you know, there's no physical contact. And that's that. It's it's that easy to, you know, keep from spreading uh, COVID. But, yeah, you know, I think it, it's a good example of just a challenge. And I think it's very appropriate that we're facing campaign challenges in a year where we're going to need someone who can really uh, economically face down some of the challenges that we're seeing in Spokane. Uh, I think it's a good litmus test to see who's able to adapt and who's able to win in this kind of environment. So Tyler, you mentioned that uh, housing prices in Spokane have spiked recently. I assume it's due to uh, the mass exodus that's occurring in a lot of places, a lot of big metropolitan centers uh, where people are looking to get more rural, but maybe not uh, extremely rural. So I'm curious, what's going on in eastern Washington as a whole? You know, What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And uh, not just the challenges, but what, what kind of opportunities are happening for businesses and, and individuals? And is that, uh, is that a function of, of what remote work has been doing to a lot of people who can work remotely? I think you're right. People are moving to Spokane from Portland, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Seattle. Those are our main cities that are, are feeding into us. And last year, we got 10,000 people. I think the, the year beforehand, we got 10,000 people. And the figures aren't out on this year, but we know it's going to be higher, right? Uh, the population of Spokane is about 250,000 people. The greater populations may be around three. Um, but we can't blame we can't blame our housing prices on this because this has been happening. This has been happening. People have been moving from the cities to Spokane for a long time now. I did real estate for about four or five years here in town, and you know. We were warning the city council and the mayor and the zoning commissions saying, listen, we have a housing shortage. We need to meet the demand. The demand is going to continue to rise. And so please loosen zoning restrictions. And specifically what that means and what we were asking for was loosen zoning restrictions in the downtown area, the uh, areas just surrounding downtown, uh, create more opportunities for multi, multi-use zoning, uh, so residential, commercial, uh, industrial, all those things combined, uh, new condos, housing at every price point from entry-level homes to luxury homes. You know, this is what we, we wanted, more dense populated downtown area. Um, they refused. The city council has, has tightened zoning restrictions since then. They have essentially stopped all development in the city of Spokane. And they've off-put it to our surrounding communities, Spokane Valley, uh, what we call the West Plains, which is um, just outside of Spokane. They've picked up the slack in trying to meet the demand. Um, but it just goes to a bigger question that we're seeing in not just Spokane, but cities around the U.S., which is what is the role of the government? 
What is the role of the government? Is it to control things or is it to get out of the way and allow people uh, the free market to take its course? Um, the government doesn't trust us anymore. That's just all there is to it. The government does not trust people to make decisions. It doesn't trust developers. It doesn't trust renters. It doesn't trust home buyers. They want to, you know, stop people from moving in these cities. And you know what? You can't do that. People move where they want to move. They want to live where they want to live. I think, um, you know, we got Fred on here. Me and Fred are somewhat China hands. And when I lived in China, I, I recognized a similar policy where the government controls where people live and what city they go to, you know, uh, because they know what's best. And we just feel like that's, that is, um, just in its nature, it's really un-American and it's, it, it goes against everything that the country was supposed to be. It's bigger than COVID and it's bigger than migration. It's, it's policy. It's interesting. You mentioned this just the other day, maybe yesterday I was reading a, an article in a newspaper here in Florida where, where, where I've been during the past few months talking about a very similar issue. It, this particular issue involved cruise ships. And I believe it was in Key West that the, the people of Key West essentially voted for some curbs on, on cruise ships. They, they were concerned about the very high number of tourists that were coming in. They wanted to, you know, they, they want tourism, but they want it in a more in a more managed fashion. And and this article talked about how at the state level there were there were people pushing back, lobbyists, um, special interests, and the person writing the uh, the article essentially said this this all something very similar to what you just said. This all boils down to people elsewhere telling the people of Key West, you don't know what's good for you. You don't know what's what's really what's really in your best interest and. As I take a look at at what's happening here, and and you know, most of our interviews we're inter we're interviewing people who are living in, in other countries, right? So it's not very often that we get to have some introspection about what's happening in the U.S. But as I look around, I, I think that it is essential, in fact, for us to start moving in that direction of letting people handle their own affairs, let every community figure out what's what's best for them. Because frankly, we're not going to be able to find common ground at a national level, even at a state level. Our nation, our states are, are just too diverse. And not only that, who is better placed to know what is best for their community than the people who actually live there, than the people who actually know it? So, so this is a, a very, very interesting point, and I'm glad you made it. I think you, you touched on it, and there, there are multiple reasons why people are better at making decisions in their own personal lives and in their communities. Um, you know, you could just focus on one reason, but there are so many reasons. Uh, one, what you're, you're pointing to is just the, the creativity that people have and the knowledge of their, their communities. And so who better to make the decisions than us about what's best for our community, right? If we want our community to grow and to welcome in people from other city, then let's do it or not. But we can we can decide on our own. Um, but also, I think another reason why we're so much better than the government is, you know, government is just in its nature. It's slow. It's a machine. It gets tied up in bureaucracy and rules and all this stuff. This is illustrates this perfectly. I went to the city hall the other day to get my fingerprints done. And 
I'm filling out the form. I get all the way through. It takes me 10 minutes to fill out this form. And they go, okay, great. You filled out the form. Now, what time would you like to schedule? Our next date is in September. I go, September? <laughs> what? <laughs> I need this tomorrow. You know, I can't wait till September to get my fingerprints done. Um, they were just booked up because they didn't have enough man hours. They're only working three days a week. They take an hour lunch every day. Um, you know, they are using for other services. They're underfunded. So many reasons. I said, fine, whatever. I hop online. I book a fingerprinting session at a private private entity. I've got a schedule for the next morning at 8.05. I walk in, I fingerprint, I walk out. That's it. That's the difference between the private sector and government. Government will always be inefficient. It doesn't matter whether I'm in office or someone else is in office. But the key is to minimize the uh, areas that we go to them for help and maximize the areas that we go to our community and ourselves for help because we're just better. We're better at it. Well, don't get me started on on government and speed, um, both as a as a former bureaucrat, but also as a as a consumer of government services, but also in in the course of of my own representation of clients. Right, it, it can be extremely frustrating to see this absolute mismatch, if you will, between the speed at which business needs to operate and the speed at which government agencies operate. Just to give you one example, and you know the the government agency in question will will remain unnamed, but there is you know this is this isn't the regulations. I mean, this is not some sort of practice that has been that that has developed over time. This is what the law provides. You know, there's a certain government agency with which we deal on a regular basis. They have two years by law to respond to petitions. Two years. I mean, that th- that's a that's the kind of time frame that in our own lives we think of as you know you can get a degree in two years right you can you know you can you can go from from not having a child to having a toddler in two years yet businesses are expected to wait two years um for for decisions that are quite frankly if if you had the proper resources you could crank these things out in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's it's not something that inherently should should take that long. And 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 I and I experienced this directly when I was working in the government myself. There's a a, a certain refusal to to stop and, and understand the the real world impact that that this kind of attitude has. I mean, there are things that if you're looking at it from a bureaucratic lens, it might make a lot of sense, but there are people out there that are trying to get on with their lives, right? That uh, really can't afford to wait. Uh, again, uh, my wife is currently applying for her green card, and that's another nightmare. Um, and you know, I don't mean for this to turn into a, a whining session about the government, but the, the, the reality is, I mean, in, in all seriousness, this has an economic impact. This drains productivity, and this is the real issue, right? And and and, and I think that. Until you've experienced that, until you've been on the receiving end of the the crippling effect that such well such lack of speed, unless you've been on the receiving end, it's just, it's just impossible to appreciate how much of a real issue it is beyond the simple inconvenience. That's a big part of our campaign is we're trying to educate people on how to think 
about the government. And, you know, we think that the government is unanimously thought of the same way by everybody. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. You know, you ask people, do you think the government is good at this? Do you think the government is good at solving problems? Do you think the government is good at helping people? It doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on. People don't trust the government. Um, but there's a breakdown somewhere there where a large portion of, of the population still takes that knowledge and, and then wants to trust the government. And um, yeah, it's just the wrong move. It's just the wrong move. Economically, it just never works. Um, and we just think it's important to to um, decrease the size of the government. And I think a lot of people would run and try to convince people that they can make the government more efficient. Um, that's just not how things work. It's not designed to be that way. You know, like I said earlier, I'm, I was student of history and the way that these governments were designed was to be slow. It was intentional, is intentionally designed to be slow because they did not want especially the founding fathers, they didn't want the government to be able to enact massive amounts of change quickly. Um, they were not fans of, of big amounts of change. So they, they tried to make sure that that wasn't going to happen. And it's been successful. I've worked in the House of Representatives and man, nothing gets done there. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting look behind the glass. So pivoting in a, in a different direction, we've already had some mentions of China in during the interview. And you already mentioned the, the podcast as well, uh, that, that had a, a, a strong focus on, on, on China. So let's talk about your experiences li living in China. This is, this is a shared experience between you and, and Jonathan and, and, and me. Uh, so, so it's always good to, to compare notes, but of course we'd, we'd, we'd like to go a little bit, a little bit further and explore how you see the, the U.S.-China relationship developing. Obviously, most of the action takes place at the, at the federal level, but I'm a strong believer in, in the sort of unitary theory of foreign relations, right, where there's a place for, for state and local governments to play a part as well. And, and, and if you're looking at the, at the big picture, that's, that's part of it too, right? So it's not... It's not as if we can say, well, that's only the, the Fed's responsibility. So please, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about your experience in China and about where the uh, U.S.-China relationship is, is heading? I have made it my goal to separate myself from, it's unrealistic for me to want to separate myself from that just because I've been so in, involved uh, in China, Chinese society, culture, and politics. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I personally liked the direction that our our relationships with China were going. Um, I think first off, I love Chinese people. Um, I think that they're great people, just like everywhere you'll find good people. And we found a lot of hospitality and kindness in China. We made lots of friends there, um, friends that we love and, and stay up with and, and care about. Um, but again, their government is, is uh, a dumpster fire. Um, they are in stark contrast to, to what we believe in our values in America. Um, and I think the last administration, um, you know, regardless of how people feel about them or their faults, um, their China policy was consistent. 
And uh, one one aspect I like was their focus on the Uyghurs and the human rights there and Hong Kong and the human rights for the people in Hong Kong. You know, I think turning a blind eye to those things is bigger than just turning a blind eye to something that's happening in another country because we're so intertwined, us and in, in China, in the United States and China. Uh, we really need to use our influence to to encourage a, a better world there at least human rights at a very least human rights right um i can't say that i'm hopeful for the relationship um just because we've had so many presidents who have got it wrong thus far uh going back to you know i would say going back to clinton when we let them into the the trade organization um, you know, it goes Clinton, Bush, Obama, all these presidents, they were trying to walk all over these guys in different ways too. It's, it's almost, it's a very interesting case study if you get into it, but trying to treat each of them differently and the presidents treat each of them differently. And each time China won, um, it wasn't until this last administration that, that we saw some, I think, positive change in, uh, intellectual property rights uh and human rights um in rallying other world leaders to pressure china to you know abide by some type of rules um so we'll see what happens i I don't want to judge before before uh we get any results from you know the biden administration and i'm praying for them and i hope that they can be firm with china and and set some real standards but uh we'll see jury's out I think we could talk about China for a long time, but Fred and I talk about China quite a bit. I think that you hit on some really great points about, you know, certainly about the people, about the relationships we built over there and, uh, you know, each at different times, different places, uh, but consistent across the board, right? And, and I think, you know, the uh, Xi Jinping's uh, rule is uh, is starting to look pretty absolute. So, um, it will be very interesting to see how the Biden administration can uh, can deal with with that. And and you know, like you said, China's not Russia. It's a lot easier for us to ignore Russia and uh, stick them in a box, uh, deal with their their tantrums once in a while, or Putin's tantrums once in a while, uh, or assassination attempts. And then it is uh, with China's you know very broad statecraft, uh, and they've got certainly a lot more resources in terms of people and money to throw after. Uh, you know, their, their hundred year marathon against, uh, you know, against the U S yeah. And you know, I, we could talk about China forever, but if I could just bring it back to Spokane, you know, in, in the U S China to me, and I, I'm, I might be alone on this. I don't hear very many people say this, but to me, China is much more similar to the U S than almost any other country. Um, it's much more similar, especially than, uh, a Sweden or Denmark that we get compared to a lot when we we talk about the pros and cons of socialism and capitalism and, and democracy and and uh, yeah, um, we're much more similar to China uh, because we have the technology, we have the influence, uh, population size, land, all those things, um, and so where I do want to bring China into the conversation in the next eight nine months is just. Showing people, hey, this is this is the direction that we're going if we continue to give uh, the government control over every aspect of our lives. If we continue to rely on the government to 
um, you know, close the wealth gap. If we continue to rely on the government to make decisions for our housing, for our homeless, for our small business, um, this is this is what it will look like. And the reality is, is that in China, there isn't some type of utopia going on. I know we see a lot of positive stories about uh, infrastructure and those things, and those things are good. Uh, there's good aspects of the infrastructure and um, some some good aspects of city planning, those kinds of things. Uh, but when it comes to quality of life, man, I don't think people realize what it really means to live in a country like that. I don't know if people fully realize, um, you know, what it is to live in a building that looks like you live in the projects and not to be upper class living. The grass is always greener. And I think just a lot of Americans, a lot of people in, in Spokane in general, a lot of them haven't been able to go to these countries where life is very different. And so they think that everything's just rosy for some reason. And it's just not the case. So uh, on your CV, it looks like you had some really interesting uh, experiences are all around the world. Um, we'd love to hear about what you did in Israel. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> you know, what's funny about that is now that people are starting to get to know me more, they want to they put me into one or two categories and, and that'd be my narrative. And then they start looking in and they say, oh my gosh, you're all over the place. <laughs> And it's true. I'm all over the place. Um, yeah, Israel was, Israel was great. I was in Israel studying Hebrew. I, I used to want to be a, in pastoral ministry. And so I actually uh, was a biblical studies major. I started my MDiv program at Fuller Theological Seminary. And um, yeah, I learned biblical Hebrew. I actually got to um, translate original Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, no one had seen them before. They were hiding in someone's bank vaults and they've been hiding since the forties. Right. And so, or maybe the sixties, I'm, I'm rusty now. Forties, the forties. And so they were, they were hiding in the bank vault and no one knew what to do with them because they didn't trust people. And so finally they brought them out and brought them onto the market and we picked them up and um, we didn't know whether they were cooking instructions or original manuscripts of the Bible. And it turned out to be original manuscripts of the Bible uh, that we were able to translate and date and do all the things. But yeah, you know, Israel was a really great experience. It's a beautiful country. Um, the people are fantastic. Uh, you know, Israelis are a little rude, which I love. You know, it's almost like being in New York. And um, yeah, love it. Food's good. That's really interesting. I tend to think that religion has a place, you know, in a lot of our lives. And uh, when you're running for political office, it tends to be, uh, you know, a very sensitive, divisive topic, you know, no matter uh, what religion and which side uh, of the aisle you're on, right? And so uh, I'm, I'm of the mind that, you know, if, if you're a religious person, you, you say it, right? And, and it's okay to say that. And if you're not, you say it, and it's okay to say that as well. But anyway, fascinating background on, on what you were doing in Israel. I'm getting that vibe from a lot of people. I don't understand why. I, I a lot of people do feel like it's a sensitive thing. For me, it's really not. I'm, I'm a Christian, and you know, it's where I get my values, and it's what makes me a better husband, and a, you know, helps me respond to people with compassion. And you know, we talked about service. That's where I, you know, get calling to service. And so, 
you know, for me, all this other stuff can fall away. Faith is, is number one for me. It's good to have something to believe in. You know, it's good to have uh, something guiding you. I think that those who aren't particularly religious have their own moral code. And if they can articulate it, uh, that's great. And I think people who are religious tend to be able to, to use their religion as a, as a shortcut to their moral code. And I don't, uh, you know, I certainly don't see anything wrong with that, wrong with anybody saying this is, you know, if you want to know what I believe, here's, here it is, it's encoded, uh, you know, in this kind of language. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's important for people to understand, uh, you know, where you stand on, on a lot of things, right? Do you think that, Uh, that people are important? Do you think that uh, it's important to take care of everyone? Or do you think that there's certain groups of people that are better than others, right? I mean, that's, it's part should be part of the discussion early on. So you can frame your your conversation with other people and understand where they're coming from, not from a place of judgment, just from a place of pure, basic understanding about how their brains work. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good framework to help people understand, you know, where I come from. This alone would probably be worth a separate podcast, but you, you both bring up excellent points. And, and taking this a step further, I think that this idea of codes and how your religious belief can really play a, a critical role in, in setting those codes. In my own case, I went to, to Catholic school basically my, my whole life, went to a Catholic law school as well. And one thing that I see with, with many of my classmates is that even though in some cases, the sort of, let's say, theological connection to the code might sort of dissolve over time or, or weaken, in, in some cases, the code itself remains a, a very strong influence on one's own, own life. And I think that there's, in, in some cases, and I think this is something that perhaps we, we don't contemplate uh, as often as we do, the the fact that you, you can, of course, uh, believe in certain ideas and adopt certain codes of behavior because you think that there's a divine component to it. But often the rules are valuable, even if you ext- extract them from that, right? So I think that, I think sometimes people don't quite see this and they might get a little bit mixed up as to what it means to to follow these, these tenets, right? So I think it's important to understand that there's that dimension as well. And in fact, so much of, of our law, especially when it comes to, to criminal matters, when it comes to to individual rights, so much of it has a foundation in in the same principles, right? We're going to have to to prepare particularly well for that one, Jonathan. But I think it's it would definitely be a good idea to have an episode where where we talk about these these issues, talk about ethical and, and moral codes. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting. We could have a roundtable, even two or three different religions represented. That would be that'd be very interesting. You know, maybe you know, totally agnostic, and then a couple of different religious viewpoints. It'd be it'd be a pretty cool discussion, I think. So we're going to sign you up, Tyler, for that one. Tyler, before we let you go, we'd like to ask for any recommendations you might have for for our listeners. Yeah, I just finished Road to Serfdom by Hayek. It's very relevant. It's it's awkwardly relevant for today. And so it, it deserves a reread for those who are listening. Thank you for that. I, I think it's sometimes easy to take certain readings for granted in the sense that we feel, well, obviously... People will have read that or they'll be familiar with that. Let's just recommend something that maybe they haven't picked up on. But I think it's that's not always the case. I think it's important sometimes to to remind people of these fundamental readings that, that they should be doing. So 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 thank you for that. So my recommendation this week is a, an article that appeared in uh, the Chinese Communist Party newspaper, the Ramin Wang. 
they have an online version in English through their Xinhua net. And so I'll make sure we drop the link for you in, in our blog post about this episode. But the focus is on Xi Jinping leading the fight against poverty. That's the title of this article. And the subtitle to that is No Letting Up Until a Complete Victory is Secured. Uh, so this this article is interesting because it really focuses on uh, not the Communist Party, but on Xi Jinping himself uh, being the crusader against uh, absolute uh, abject poverty, right? Alleviating abject poverty in China. Um, and so it said that he started, you know, started that eight years ago. Um, and now that he, he, not the Communist Party and not the Chinese government, not the Chinese people, right? He personally has acted to eradicate extreme poverty for the 100 million rural people who were affected. Um, and so, I mean, there is some other credit as well given given to the, the people in the rural communities, right? But the interesting thing that is that the, she is the focus of this, right? It's not the Communist Party. It is, it is she himself. And this is along with the trend that we've seen recently uh, in that, you know, she did away with his term limits so he could remain in power for the rest of his life. And then the rhetoric that's coming out of, out of the Communist Party is to continue to elevate him. I like this article because it's very clear that she is not going away um, and that he is purposely taking the credit. I mean, you know, he, he's the head of the Communist Party, so certainly he gets to dictate what's on the front page of the Communist Party newspaper. Um, so it's interesting, you know, alongside the eradication of poverty, which certainly is uh, a very worthwhile thing to work toward. And, and congratulations to China for for doing this through through force of will, force of might, and, and otherwise, because it, it can only be good. Although there's always a lot of backstory to it, and we won't get into it anymore today. But I think it is interesting to see, you know, it, with the quick U.S. election cycle and other U.S. other election cycles around the world, what China is doing with this consolidation of power and, and, you know, she has probably still got another 20 years to live. I would think if he, if he takes care of himself, Fred, what do you have for us today? My own recommendation this week is an article that came out, I guess, three years ago, January 25th, 2018 in HuffPost, most specifically in Highline, which I believe is one of their sub publications. This was written by Kent Russell. Every once in a while, I'll go back and, and, and read this article because it's it's just so good. And in fact, last night, I, I went a bit a step further and actually looked at some of Russell's other writings and actually ordered one of his books online. It, 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 it talks about a, a walking tour that he did across the state of Florida. So I'm looking forward to that. But The Disaster Tourist, it's number one, very well written. I mean, the guy just has real real talent for writing, but the topic itself is is fascinating. He uh, picks up after the the death of uh, Otto Warmbier, the American student who who died after he came back from from North Korea after having been accused by the North Korean authorities of having stolen a propaganda poster or something like that. And Russell basically decided to look into the company that organized the tour and found that they're one of the most uh, infamous exemplars of this brand of tourism that we could call disaster tourism or there's other there's other names for it so he decided to sign up for one of their tours um in the uh, the caucasus so he he went to chechnya and um south ossetia or one of these places and but it's it's really well done really humorous not just some of the stories that he tells even some of this the very language that he used just stuck with me you know and Three years later, it's still with me. He does such a great job of it. So if you're looking for a relatively light yet stimulating read, 
definitely the, the disaster tourist will, will fit the bill. And with that, Tyler, I'd like to thank you once more for coming on the podcast. It was a, a real pleasure. Yeah, definitely. And just so people know how to find me, they can go to Tyler Stephen LeMasters on Facebook. They want to follow the campaign. Excellent. Well, good luck with that as well. Good luck with the elections. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.